0: This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B.
1: Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Well, in the next 60 minutes, we're going to go in two very different directions, so to speak. Coming up in the second part of the program, our good friend, environmentalist, and a gentleman who writes about global warming frequently, has a new article in Counterpunch. It's all about UFOs. Or is it? We'll talk to Robert Hunzinger in the second half of the program. First. I'm very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, an author. I just love talking to this man. He's got so many things to talk about. And goodness, he's got a new book which really goes into the... Let's, let's use an old-fashioned phrase, the nitty-gritty... The book is called The Midnight Kingdom, and listen to the subtitle because it's very important. A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared Yates, Sexton, welcome back, my friends, to Life Elsewhere.
2: Hey, thank you. I'm going to be saying nitty-gritty for the next couple of weeks. That's, (laughs) that's, That's baked into the cake at this point.
1: Now, is that something that your
2: grandmother might have said? That is absolutely something that Grandma Lois would have said back in the day.
1: Now, you know why I'm mentioning your grandmother, of course, is that you start the book off by talking about your grandmother and you finish the book by referring to in the epilogue by referring to your grandmother, which is such an important I mean, it's so important because growing up in Indiana and your grandmother and everything, this is an integral part of the story that you tell in your book. I want to get to it back in a few details here. But first of all, I have to tell you that after my initial read of your book, I thought, now, what am I going t- to say to Jared? What's my big takeaway? And stand by my, my takeaway from The Midnight Kingdom initially was, be afraid, be very afraid. what do you think
2: yeah i i mean listen i I've spent the last few years warning um you know in conversations with with you and others that there's something that is brewing in the United States of America and around the world a right wing authoritarian movement uh that is obsessed with rolling back the progress of the twentieth century with reinstalling, hierarchical rule, uh, you know, really, really oppressive systems. But I do also want to point out as we're having this conversation, I know I have a little bit of a reputation as a, as a doomsayer. I get that. Um, but I am very optimistic. I am very hopeful. And, you know, I think the conversations that you and I have had and a lot of the conversations others are having point to a better future that we are going to get to. But in order to get there, we have to understand that the alternative is uh, really ugly. Really, really ugly.
1: Yes. Well, I'm glad that you said that because that was something that I wanted to say because I I started off by saying my initial response or my initial Mm -hmm. takeaway was be afraid, be very afraid. But then reading your epilogue, and then we come back to just focusing on your grandmother just for a moment, because you do say at the very end of your epilogue, That, yeah, if we do this right, if we handle this situation correctly, things could be okay. Things will be okay. But then that's their big if, if we handle things correctly. And this is why the Midnight Kingdom is so important, because you give us a history of power, paranoia, and the coming crisis. Let's focus on the history parts, because you go back in time, you go right back to Roman times, to Nero, I've got to tell you, Jared, I love history and I just love the way that you go. You take us on this journey. I, I, I wish history teachers in high schools could could just use your book as a as sort of a guide has, how to go through history. Talk to me about putting the history part into this book.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that's happened in my life, um, one of the only reasons we're having this discussion is because back in 2016, I was sneaking into Donald Trump rallies and reporting what I heard from there. Meanwhile, in the last six years, I sort of got thrown into the deep end of the pool. I needed to understand, you know, history. I needed to understand how we've arrived at this moment. This book is me learning that history. It's going back and sort of like having to like update myself. So hopefully the book is sort of riding along with me as I'm discovering these currents of history. And as I'm discovering, and and this is one of the overarching themes, the situation we're in right now it looks like a lot of situations that have occurred over history, over these cycles. And the good news is that humanity can learn from these things. We can look back at where we've been in the fights that we've already had, and it can inform what we're doing now. The problem is that history is hidden, right? History has been intentionally obfuscated and hidden by very powerful, very wealthy people. I think one of the biggest weapons that we're going to have is learning that history, is going to learn how we've arrived here. That way we can learn from past mistakes and past victories. And I think that's one of the reasons we're going to have a better future.
1: One of the things that you say, Jared, in your book is that we're living in an age of inequity like we've never seen before. And when I read that, I'm thinking to myself, "Well, I wonder what it was like, and I wonder if Jared thought about this, if one was a peasant in the fifteenth century as opposed to being a nobleman and i I just wanted to throw that out to you. Do you think you're overstating the inequities or or do you think it really certainly is in this day and age so much worse?
2: I'm so glad that you brought up feudalism because I think feudalism is actually one of the important things we need to understand, which is It was this old idea, right, that that the world was ordered from God down to kings, down to the lowly peasant. And by the way, if you were born a peasant, you did not expect to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right, and start a small business or do whatever. What we're actually looking at now is more of a neo-feudalism. It's it's more of a rebirth because once capitalism took over, it was this idea of a meritocracy, right? You could work your way up, like the world is malleable and like you would be rewarded for your talents. Now we've arrived at this point where you have feudal lords, like like, you know, even Elon Musk likes yes. to call himself a lord, a techno lord, a techno king. They now enough resources that they can afford to have their own private space agencies right that's different and what's actually happened is that that idea of a meritocracy the idea of uh, american dream the bootstraps whatever you want to call it that has been destroyed And we're moving back into the concentrated wealth and capital of exactly what you're talking about. It's reinstituting those old hierarchies in which you have like a 1% of the population who has everything and everybody underneath is subservient and they have no expectations of their lives getting better. So this actually is a replaying of exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yes. Whilst we're on this subject of feudalism, because it's something which I've I've thought about a great deal, as particularly as I've gotten older and when I see what's going on around me, just like you. But whilst we're on this subject, I'd just like to get your take on, on a news story that won't seem to go away. And that is the royals from my home country, the UK. Just a quick take on for that for me, Jared.
2: Well, I'm also glad you brought that up because I actually think the British monarchy is a really interesting thing to yes, take a look yes. at because, you know, feudalism has this moment. And, and this is something I talk about in the book that we need to be uh, aware of because we currently live in this, uh, you know, pseudo liberal democracy. Everyone wants to say everything, everything's is going to work out, right? We're at the end of history. There's nothing else that could possibly ever take this place. Feudalism was the exact same. And by the way, for those keeping track, feudalism was destroyed by things like climate change. It was destroyed by a pandemic, right? And these, like, fluctuations led to a new world. Well, the British monarchy, um, one of the reasons why it still exists is because it was more or less captured by capitalism as it broke the chains of feudalism. You know, you had kings who did not want to give up their power, and as a result, they were overthrown. They were beheaded. You know, they were tossed out. And eventually what happens is you have the advent of capitalism, but it allows the British monarchy because you reinstitute the monarchy with a bunch of monarchs who are going to go along with capitalism and with the expansion of the British Empire in this new capitalist world. The whole point is this. When you see the dying of feudalism, you see wars, you see uprisings, you see all kinds of things that didn't seem possible. We're at another crossroads like that now. And yes, what yes. what we thought was the end of history, it turns out, was just a brief little pool of history. And the next thing to come is still to be determined. And if you look at things like feudalism into capitalism, a lot of people died. A lot of suffering took place in order to go from one to the next. And we need to learn from that. We need to learn like, that we have reached this crossroads and something new is coming.
1: Yes. So well explained. So I really appreciate that. There is a word that you use frequently throughout the book. And on page, let me see here, 237, you say neoliberalism had emerged in the summer of 1938. Explain to my listeners what you mean by neoliberalism.
2: Okay. So this is one of the most important terms, but we don't have a lot of understanding of it. Yeah, when I talk about it, people push back because everybody thinks liberal means democratic, right? Or like it's 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 sort of a a political philosophy. Neoliberalism is its own idea. Uh, it took ple- It started to take shape as Nazism, fascism, communism were gaining powers as liberal democracy was starting to have real troubles, right, with the Great Depression. These neoliberals wanted to create a new world in which democratic energies were contained they saw people as being dangerous that things like economies and governments uh were way too important to be trusted to regular people to vote for and decide what what to be done with in the 1970s as you know you have stagflation you know people remember like you know jimmy carter's uh, crisis of confidence and all of this you start having uh an acceptance of neoliberalism which is the idea that the government should not invest in anything, really, right? The government should not be investing in social programs like the New Deal had seen. It shouldn't be investing in Social Security, Medicare, uh, you know, uh, health care, whatever. That, that actually meant that the government's entire purpose was to protect the free market, more or less, and that everything should be decided by the free market. And one of the things that happens is that democracy gets eroded. Right. Um, You start having basically two parties here in the United States that are both sort of uh, shades of each other. They're expressions of how the market should work or how the government should continue. Meanwhile, you start having this idea that you don't really vote at the ballot box. You vote with your dollars. Right. And this should sound familiar for anybody now, particularly as all of our politics are, do you buy a gas stove or an electric stove? You know, do you buy a Dr. Seuss book? Do you buy Nike or New Balance? And all of these culture wars now are about how you're spending your money as opposed to how representative government works. We're living in the neoliberal consensus and the neoliberal consensus has redistributed. And I want to make this very, very clear trillions with a t trillions of dollars from the working and middle class to one percent of the population this is how you go from millionaires flying private planes to elon musk having his own personal space agency right and that inequality and redistribution has created a situation that is not sustainable this like consensus that we know is falling apart And as it falls apart, we're seeing more and more extremism. We're seeing radicalism. And we are nearing the end of this consensus. The question now is what replaces it? And that's the big question we have to answer.
1: Yes. Um, Just quickly, I just want to sidetrack just slightly here and then right back into the book. But You mentioned Elon Musk, and, and, and this ties in very much with everything you're talking about here. I've heard recently, I've been seeing news stories uh, in the last couple of days, even a car expert on on uh, uh, YouTube going on about the disvalue. If that is that a word for Tesla? That Tesla, used Teslas are using value. And new Teslas are not being sold because liberals, in quotes, don't want to be seen buying something that's, that's associated with the horrible Elon Musk, just quickly want to get your take on, on that sort of diversion, if you like.
2: Yeah. And I think it's really instructive, right? And 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 I know you remember this as well as I do. Just years ago, they would trot Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos in front of Congress. And they instead of asking questions, they would basically be like, how do you do it? You know, they, it was basically a flirtation with them. It was yeah, like, yeah. All of our money, all of our problems, all of these issues are going to be solved by these geniuses, right? And now all of a sudden we're realizing, oh my God, these people weren't that talented. They weren't actually comp- competent in what they were doing. It just so happens that the moment was right for the things that they were peddling. Well, now we've reached this point where the the richest man in the world, until he lost billions, right, um, isn't that competent, has moved to the right, and as a result, It exposes something, which is we have two economies now. We have an economy of people who, you know, are are authoritarian in nature. They're going out, they're buying weapons, they're buying trucks. Now they're buying Teslas because Elon Musk is on their side, right? Um, They're watching, you know, like a movie will come out and the movie will be determined, like its success will be determined based on what political message it has and what political marketing it has. So you're actually seeing two parallel economies that are growing. In the past, it used to be some people buy blue jeans, some people buy suits. Now it's, are you part of the liberal economy or are you part of the right wing MAGA economy? And this is by the way, part of what's called a marketing niche or marketing demographics. And we've seen this happen over and over again. It just so happens that now politically, that's where the economy is it's what your supposed ideology and what your principles say about you and that that actually has some really terrifying consequences because i'm i'm sorry but if a authoritarian right-wing movement starts buying semi-automatic weapons yeah, because they believe yeah. that they're going to protect themselves and their families from you know woke mobs yeah that increases political instability and it also makes violence more than likely
1: Jared Yates Sexton is my guest. His new book, terrific read, The Midnight Kingdom, A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Talking about the inequity, talking about feudalism, and and, and talking about, well, going back to everything you just said, two words, drug lords. Do they they fit into this? Does, Does the money that's made with illegal drugs, does this tie into... Really The theme with the history and the power and the paranoia does this tie in Jared
2: well, you know one of the the things that I found researching this book is that. Basically, you know, you you want to talk about everything from cartels to organized crime. They go hand in hand with systems of power. You know, one one of the most amazing things that you see throughout history is you have the establishing of laws. You have the establishing of law enforcement, and then you have organized crime that happens on the other side of it. And the same people are involved in it constantly. You know, the, the drug trade is one of the biggest means of money laundering. And if you actually look through history... It has done everything from funding political operations like iran contra to uh you know slush funds to to laundering this this type of money. so what you actually start to realize is that these systems of law and order are actually weapons right It's not actually the establishment of an equitable system where and, and we know this we know that white wealthy men don't you know usually get held accountable for their actions. It's actually a weapon for the powerful to use to people below them. And and actually, I found that I traced that back to ancient Rome, where there were two classes. There were a group of people who wielded the laws and a peop- a group of people who were subject to the laws. And now we've come back around to that. And it's more explicit than than basically ever.
1: Yes. Jared, there's one word that, after reading your book and then going back and reading it yet again, there's a word that came to my mind, and and I, and I, I, I want to ask you about this, and that's information because it really ties in again so much, particularly to the coming crisis and about all the paranoia, and of course the history, is how we get our information, what we believe in, and what we accept as as believable. When we start to unravel that, it, bec- it sounds crazy. It sounds absolutely bizarre and nuts. But at the same time, it's, it's so important. But I don't know that you and I think about it and people that you talk to and people that I talk to. But does the average Joe think about information and how he gets his information?
2: Well, you know, I I come from uh, this really, really poor working family, Uh, factory workers, laborers, coal miners, you name it. They don't have a lot of time to consider it. Yeah, they're exhausted. Um, They also, you know, in order for me to get having this conversation with you, I had to take on tens of thousands of dollars of student debt. I had to go through incredible amounts of education that some people make that decision. Some people Don't, right? It's not that people aren't smarter, that they're incompetent. It's that they don't necessarily have the time. And what takes the place are conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories are really, really simplified understandings of how things work. So you and I could spend an hour and a half talking about neoliberalism and not even scratch the surface, right? We can talk about deindustrialization, why in the 1990s, factories moved offshore. We can talk about economic trends. Those things include specialized knowledge, right? We've done the research. We've had the conversations. My family hasn't had that opportunity. All they know is that their jobs have gone away, that their towns have dried up, and they don't seem to have any political representation. As a result... The people who benefited the most, the people who got rid of those factories, the people who have exploited them, they tell them a different story. And conspiracy theories like the ones we're dealing with now, they all have components that I've found throughout history, which is this. The wealthy and the powerful tell a story about why things have happened, but they take the the responsibility off of themselves and put it on their political enemies, right? So instead of talking about capitalism, instead of talking about neoliberalism, you're talking about evil Satan worshipers. You're talking about yes. satanic cabals. You're talking about Jewish puppet masters. You're talking about people of color who want to come for all of your things, right? And gay and trans people who want to destroy the world and take your children. So what keeps happening is a simplified story gets put in place of the larger complicated story that reveals who is responsible. And that is where we're at right now. That imp- and, and by the way, what I found in history, and this shocked me, is that you can always tell when these crises are coming because the right wing always goes after education. They always go after educators. They always intimidate teachers. They always take over curricula. And when they do it, they're doing it to change history and they're doing it to change your understanding of how things work. It, it, it's like clockwork. And I was, I was shocked to find
1: it. Yes. Gerald, I want to just mention something that you said on Twitter, I think it was yesterday, publication day for the book. And you said, this is the hardest thing I've done. And I'd just like to delve into that just a little bit more. Explain to us why this was the hardest thing you've done.
2: Well, I want to be honest about this. Um, You know, I had paid attention to history and politics most of my life. You know, I was I was always very, very curious. But what I didn't realize was that I was consuming weaponized knowledge. You know what I mean? Most of our understandings of American and world history, um, they're written by powerful people. You know, Uh, history is written by the victors. And what I had to do was I had to go in and I had to confront preconceived notions that I had of how the world worked and how these things took place. And I had to look at, honestly, some really gnarly things. You know, you brought up feudalism. Feudalism yeah. in part was made possible because citizens didn't know how to read. They didn't have any knowledge, right? They they were kept intentionally illiterate and in servitude. That's really harsh to understand that not only that that happened, but that it could happen again. You know, that 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 this is the, the playbook that a lot of these right-wing authoritarians are looking to, to replicate. So in a way, I had to confront fear. I had to confront a lot of nihilism. But I have to tell you something. I came out very optimistic. I came out very hopeful. And I think that in the long run, this is going to be very turbulent. This is going to be a tumultuous period. I think we're going to see some, we already have, but we're going to see some really gnarly things. But you know what stories like that taught me? Humanity is miraculous. We are so resilient. And the fact that like feudalism had us so captured and we clawed and scratched our way out of it tells us. I think we're going to win this thing in the long run. But, you know, confronting that and dealing with that, it, it again, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. It, it it basically made me change everything that I thought about myself and also the world.
3: Yes. Gosh, that's,
1: oh, just hearing you say that, that that's, uh, yeah. Something I think we have to keep in mind is that we're not just talking about the US of A. Yep. We're talking about the whole world. And this is an area that I think and I'm not sure if you agree, but I think we tend to forget about what's out of our own sphere, our own our own little bubble that we live in.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. You know, to to go ahead, the the old terms, of course, are first, second and third world. Right. Those things have fallen out of out of favor. But I think it's particularly interesting to take a look at this. You know, in America, we talk a lot about the decline of America, like what could happen. And whenever you hear people talk about that, it's like they don't have running water. Maybe they don't have electricity. Maybe there are roving bands of dangerous people. Well, guess what? Go to Mexico. You know, go to any other country that isn't considered a first world country. Those people are being exploited. And the reason that they're being exploited is that and and I want to be frank about this so that you and I can have a conversation on Zoom. I'm sitting here on my Apple computer, which was made by exploitation. I'm sitting here looking at my phone, which is made through exploitation, you know, and what we need to understand is that these lives that we're leading and that we have led they depend on us being okay with that exploitation. It depends on us not questioning where things come from. But the moment, by the way, that you go to the store and your favorite, you know, your favorite chips or, you know, your, your formula is not there, all of a sudden you start questioning what's going on. And that inconvenience is starting to make us question the entire structure. And once we start doing that, we start having conversations about what we should do or how the world should work. And the truth is, we have more than enough resources. We have more than enough space that we can make this like a better world. The question is, do we want to start confronting the things that our luxuries rest upon? And that is a hard thing to do. But now we have to do it more than ever.
1: Absolutely. Well, well said, Jared. You know, as I'm listening to you and, and after reading your book, I'm I'm thinking to myself, there's so many things that I see happening right now that do seem to be going in a positive direction. It does seem to be that people are questioning and people like your, your parents and your family where you grew up. And just like me, I grew up in a very poor situation in, in South London. In fact, just as a side note, we didn't have an indoor toilet until I was well into my teens. That was normal. That was normal growing up where I grew up. We grew up in the projects. You know, it was what we call a council estate in England. But I see things changing. I see people that I'm talking to just in, in daily life. I see people, it seems to me, recognizing that we do need to, yep. to, to do some thinking, to, to that change our behavior so I'm coming towards here, the, the the coming crisis that you talk about in your book. And as you've already said, you're optimistic. But you also say that we are going to go through some terrible times, hence the coming crisis. Is this something that you think, as we're going through it, we can... We can detach ourselves from, or or do we, as you and I, because we kind of like know we can talk about this, but but will we have to be involving ourselves, or we, are we going to stand on the sidelines?
2: Uh, I'm dedicating myself in 2023 and using this book. I'm, I'm 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 dedicating myself to being part of the solution. I'm going out. Yeah, I'm yeah. organizing. I'm talking to people. I'm I'm trying to engage in solidarity. Yes, and I got to tell you that part of. Part of this is that conditions are getting worse. You know, in England, of course, there there are so many problems in terms of energy. Right? Like one of the gro- one of the greatest empires in the history of the world now has to concern itself over whether or not its citizens are going to die in the winter. Yes. Um, yes. Here in the United States, you know, Flint, Michigan. My God, how long have they been without drinking water? Right. Texas, the 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 energy completely fell apart. We're not able to take care of ourselves. Our bridges are falling apart. When you look at that, as conditions worsen. That criticism of of these institutions is well-earned. We do not have representatives that actually take care of us. Going back to what we talked about, they are representing the wealth class and businesses and the so-called free market. I think that we are going to have to start remembering that democracy is more than going to the ballot box every two to three years, right, or two to four years. You have to engage in community building. You have to engage in solidarity. You have to engage in labor actions. You have to go out and support each other. And so I think in watching this thing take form, we're starting to understand that something is wrong, which means we have to get skin in the game. We yes, have to go yes. out. We have to fight for this thing because we can't just leave it to these people to represent us anymore.
1: Right. Yes. And, and we have to be tolerant as well in, in how we explain. And, I, and I, I I hear that from you. I hear a lot more sort of understanding coming from you. And you sort of said that right at the very beginning. It's a great book. I, I really enjoyed reading it, Jared. You you're a good writer, you know that. And and I, I I appreciate that. I read a lot. And this was a this was not put downable. Is that does that make sense? Yes, I, I, I kept reading it. The Midnight Kingdom. A History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. The very learned, the very wonderful Jared Yates Sexton is the author and has been my guest. Jared, I thoroughly enjoy talking to you. Come back on the show anytime you want.
2: My friend, you flatter me and I'm so humbled. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Absolutely. All the very best. Thank you very much to Jared Yates Sexton for a terrific conversation. The link to his book is up at LifeElsewhere.co. Coming up, our good friend Robert Hunziker talks to us about UFOs and why he doesn't like the new name that the Pentagon has insisted upon. So stay around for that.
0: This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C O.
1: It's always a pleasure to welcome to the program a gentleman we love talking to because he always has interesting things to say, particularly about the environment and the climate, because that's what he's mainly known for. His work, his writing can be found in counterpunch. And interestingly, a recent article caught my eye because it's about UFOs. Or is it? Robert Hunziker is my guest. Robert, welcome back to
4: Life Elsewhere. Hi, Norman. Happy New Year to you. Great to see you and talk to you again.
1: Nice to see you, Robert. Always a pleasure. So I was a little bit, and I'm going to be honest with you, I was a little bit taken aback when I saw the headline UFOs Forever uh, with the uh, signature there of Robert Hunziker and I'm thinking hold on a second here Robert doesn't write about UFOs and of course then I got into it so can you explain to my audience what in the world is going on here Robert Hunziker talking about UFOs
4: yeah well you know um, I'm talking about unidentified anomalous phenomena UAPs now that's the new thing that the Pentagon has labeled it that's their new acronym and of course, I had a complaint to lodge about that, but just let's do a scenario here for a minute, Norman. Yeah. You yeah. and I are out on a hike. And I say to you, um, Norman, there's a UAP. Look. And you turn to me and say, UAP? What is a UAP? <laughs> you, missed, you missed the UFO. Scenario number two, we're walking again together. And I say to you, Norman, there's a UFO. You don't say a word, but you look right at where that UFO is. So, right. It's embedded in our culture, UFO. It is so much, and it has this stigma attached to it. So what's happened is the Pentagon, and this is really getting to be a serious situation, is taking this dead serious, maybe for the first time ever. They had to get rid of the stigma because they've actually told their pilots, fighter pilots, we want you to start reporting these when they happen. We know how reluctant you've been in the past because of the stigma, because you'll be made fun of, be crazed, you're, oh, another crazy report, yada, yada, yada. So let's do this. Let's talk about what the pilots are actually saying, because I yep. have that. Then let's talk about what the Pentagon's doing now, and let's talk, talk about a couple, something else interesting. The Pentagon may have some information, top secret information we want to talk about that we think we know something about that's really interesting. And then what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about what um, astrobiologists are saying about UFOs and aliens and so forth. And then finally, the fun part, I want to take you to Roswell in 1947 with Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut who went there uh, several years ago after his Apollo flight. He was born in Roswell. And I'm going to give you some breaking news about the Roswell incident, when we do that. It's okay. very key. Okay. So right. first, of all, with what the pilots are saying right now, fighter pilots, and this is why the Pentagon has done a 360 or 180 or whatever it is, turnabout, and they're taking a whole different approach. They're they're taking a very serious, measured, sober approach to UAPs. I have trouble saying that. UAP. Yes, yes. Pilots say Let's just start with Lieutenant Commander Alex Dietrich. Now, Alex Dietrich, a woman, was happened to be on 60 Minutes because she was one of the pilots on the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group in 2004, flying up one of our jet fighters, and she saw a very fast-moving, erratic object. She happened to be in formation with her commander named Dave Braver. And he said, let me take the lead, you fly my wing. And he went to inspect this UAP. Well, UFO then is what they were calling them. Mm. Uh, It mirrored his flight pattern, his flight behavior. If he took a left, it went left. If he nosed up, it nosed up. And then all of a sudden, it suddenly disappeared. At that time, when Commander Craver and Lieutenant Commander Dietrich returned to the Nimitz and landed, they talked together and they said, you know, if we had been solo, we wouldn't have reported this. But since we were together, we're going to report it. And then, of course, it kind of got into the news. She got to 60 minutes, blah, 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 blah. Another example of pilots, there's an exclusive training ground or area off the U.S. East Coast for new fighter pilots. And what's happened is that the air crews there are frequently observing these unknown objects that exhibit these highly anomalous flight characteristics. Um, Navy fighter pilot Ryan Graves made the following statement. They are a cube in a sphere. That's what I'm seeing, a cube in a sphere. Another pilot said a cube in a sphere rode with him 30 feet from his jet plane before it finally zipped off. It was a cube in a sphere within 30 feet Another F-18 fighter pilot had a near collision with a cube in a sphere, is what he described. So the main point to be made by what the pilots are telling us and what they told the Pentagon is that this technology shatters our perception of propulsion, of flight controls, of material science, and of physics. And all, all these sightings perform these things with no noticeable propulsion whatsoever. Now, what's strange, of course, is they see these things accelerate to hypersonic speeds, and then they can suddenly stop, and then they can make a right turn. So the Pentagon has got dead serious about this now. And they put out a report in June of 2021. And when they did that, they said that the US Navy pilots have reported 144 sightings since 2004. A year later, in May of 2022, they put out a report that the sightings had gone up to 400 with 11 near collisions of these UAPs. What happened in the interim is that's when the Pentagon said, we're gonna rename UFOs, UAPs, so we get rid of the stigma, Number one. Secondly, we want the pilots reporting these incidents to us. And look at that. It went from 144 over a period of uh, several years to one year, 300 more. The pilots wow. are reporting them now. Yeah. There's a very interesting article, Norman, in The New Yorker that went into this in great detail called How the Pentagon Started Taking UFOs Seriously. And what they talk about there is... Um, they claim the government already has, and this is a quote, remarkable physical evidence that has not been released to the public. Uh, a Pentagon official they talked to implied the government possesses stark visual documentation of UAPs. Uh, the UAP investigators distributed two classified Intel Intel papers, intelligent papers, via an ultra secure network of images and videos of a cube shaped object in a large equilateral triangle coming up out of the water. And they classify those as non-human technology. Those are what the summation people are thinking they have, but they haven't released it to the public yet. So it's a little bit of speculation based upon the interviews with some people at the Pentagon. So, Robert, can I ask you this?
1: In all yeah. these reportings, was were any of these pilots able to take video or shoot any, any photos? Has that yeah. happened?
4: That's what they think. That's what they uh, surmised in the New Yorker article that I mentioned, how the Pentagon started taking UFOs so that's a great article. People should go back and yeah. read that in New Yorker. Mm-hmm. It goes into it's very long, but that's one of the things they went into that they believe that they have two classified Intel papers that actually have the images videos of yeah. cube-shaped objects and the large equilateral triangle that they have not released to the public. That's what they surmised based upon their interviews.: It's not proven what is the scale?
1: What's the scale? What's the size? Do we, do we have any approximation?
4: Uh, they typically are about 40 they think around 30 40 feet in length these uh-huh. yeah that's what they kind of reported um so um but the pilots are all over this now and they're getting it's becoming more frequent that they're, this is happening it's almost like the other side if you will is trying to reach out and trying to I mean when one of these gets within 30 feet of a jet fighter pilot and who's who are most reliable people in the country, and when it comes to great vision and and, and being able to recognize things in, in 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 this space, it's our pilots. Yes, they're highly trained. They're trained to do this type of thing. Yes, and so the Pentagon is leaning on them. Now, let me tell you what the astrobiologists bi- yes. are saying. Yes, yes, because that's also was in this New Yorker article. They said they to a person, astrobiologists virtually all believe we are not alone. And you've heard of SETI, which is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, yes. that whole uh, project that's ongoing, the Institute. Uh, they believe we'll have inconvertible proof of intelligent life by 2036. Mm-hmm. We'll have inconvertible proof. This is what they're telling the people from the New, York, New Yorker who interviewed them. You know, there are hundreds of millions of potential habitable planets in just the Milky Way alone. Yeah, Think about that. And there, you guess how many galaxies there are? Milky Way is a smaller galaxy, by the way. There are two, we now know because of the James Webb Telescope, there are two trillion galaxies in a, the observable universe, the observable universe. The largest galaxy, by the way, is called IC 1101. It has 100 trillion stars. That's
1: that number. number. That number, Robert, is is just like a, you can't even begin to sort of, you know, yeah. envision that. That's yeah. that's ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy.
4: Yeah. Yeah. So so are are you really you know our our tr- tried and te- true tested and and, and brightest uh, scientists, uh, astrophysicists and physicists are telling us now that we're not alone. They're telling us that, and the Pentagon's acting that way. Let's go to Roswell. Um, And because I've got a surprise for you when we talk about Roswell. Um, Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, I wrote a review uh, of his book, From Outer Space to Inner Space. And uh, that's on Counterpunch if people like to read it. And the title of my article was Astronaut Edgar Mitchell, State of the Planet Revisited. Because in his book, he talked about the state of our planet. And it's pretty sour reading, by the way, if you just look at that part of it, what he talks about. And if you want to, we can talk about that as well. Anyway, he was on Apollo 14, he and Alan Shepard, uh, and they took a nine-day trip to the moon. They walked on the moon, came back. This all happened in 1971. And when that happened, uh, he was mesmerized because the Kitty Hawk, their command module, uh, when they were coming back from the moon, it takes a couple of days, it rotated 360 degrees every two minutes. And when it does that, when you're in outer space and there's no atmosphere, you see 10 times as many stars, and they're 10 times brighter than they are anywhere else. So you yeah. really you feel you're part of the universe. And he felt this universal connectiveness. It became a transcendental experience for him. And he wrote uh, a lot about the nature of consciousness following that. And there's a lot of interesting things to be said about that in his book, "Outer Space to Inner Space. He passed away six years ago. But before he passed away, he wanted to go back to his hometown of Roswell. And he wanted to talk to the people that he could find who were involved in 1947 when the alleged craft UFO crashed in Roswell. And he met with the uh, deputy of the sheriff's department who actually supervised traffic at the site. He also met with an officer of Roswell Air Base, where the debris was taken and dead aliens were taken. He also met with a family member of the local funeral home that provided caskets for the dead bodies that were found at the crash, talked to all these people. And most interesting of all, he met with Jesse Marcel Jr. And Jesse Marcel Jr. is the son of Major Jesse Marcel an intelligence officer in the Marine Corps, who was the first military officer or person on the site, the crash site. He brought home that evening to his home, debris from the crash site. And the debris that he brought home was indestructible material. And he told his family members and his son, this is not of this earth. He handed his son, Jesse, who... Edgar Mitchell talked to a beam from the wreckage, and on the beam, in purple-hued colors, were hieroglyphics, like you would find if you went to the pyramids. Hieroglyphics, mm. of some kind. And his son held that beam in those with those purple-hued hieroglyphics. This came directly from that crash site. Um, here's what uh, Mitchell said in his book. After he had talked to these people and they had told him essentially, yeah, it was a UFO. There were alien bodies. We saw them, blah, blah, blah. On and on they went. Further on in his book, he said, I'll quote him, I have had additional confirmation from very high ranking members of several governments that UFOs are real and that ETs have made contact with Earth. Their sources, their own militaries, who are studying this matter. At the end of that chapter in his book, he said, I am persuaded utterly and completely that we are being visited by extraterrestrials. Now the new book came out, um, his initial publication I think may have been 10 years ago and then they just came out with it again or six years ago or something prior to his death. And then the new one came out with a foreword by Avi Loeb, the astrophysicist from Harvard was the person who identified the Amu Am, Amu Amu uh, visitor to our solar system some years ago? If you recall, there was a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah, that, and um, he um, claims that that uh, he actually wrote a book about Omahu Omahu, which stands for um, uh, Scout in a in a, in a um, indigenous language, and. Um, what happened, and the reason he thinks we're being visited, and he thinks that was an alien craft, by the way, is that it 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 did the opposite intuitively what you think it should do. Number one, it didn't have a, a tail to it like a comet would. Secondly, it, re, it actually moved away from the gravitational pull of the sun. They've never, you've never seen a comet or anything ever do that before. When it left our solar system, it moved away from the gravitational pull of the sun at extraordinarily high speeds, and he is pretty certain that that was a craft from some other civilization. So, well,
1: but do we do we know what happened to the to the beam that you're talking about at Roswell with the hieroglyphics on it that the gentleman talked about? Are there photographs of it, and
4: do we know what happened to it? Uh, I don't know that. That's a great question, and I'm going to look into it. By the way, yeah. Let me give you the breaking news i got. Remember <laughs> I told you that. Yeah, so, yeah 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 um, a physicist um actually pretty established physicists in the united states read my article i happen to know him anyway he sent me an email based upon my article ufo forever he said that's a great article and then he said this is a quote by him a physicist friend of mine has examined materials from roswell under electron microscope, you can be assured they're out there and here. Wow. You can be assured they're out there and here. I also got an email from a philosopher, PhD, who teaches at one of the major universities in New York, and regarding my UFO Forever article. And he actually had an experience with a UFO and explained it to me in his um, email. So, I'm hearing from some pretty bright, well established people who are highly educated, uh, who've had these experiences themselves because wow. of that article that I wrote that was in Counterpunch uh, UFO Forever. And I encourage your readers to read it. <laughs> uh, we will have the link up on our Life
1: Elsewhere site, Robert. Before we have to curtail, as always, you know, we only have a certain amount of time. Do we know what's going on in other countries? We're talking about the Pentagon. We're talking about the U.S. government and what they're doing or rather maybe what they're not doing. Do we know what Russia or China or whoever, wherever, what's going on with other countries?
4: Any clues? Yeah. if uh, In Edgar Mitchell's statements, uh, when I read his book, implicit within what he was saying, the UK is very much involved. Other than that, I don't know. You don't but know. Yeah. he evidently uh, has interfaced with several people in the military at the UK. That's what it sounds like, based upon what I read. And I think they've had several experiences also. The thing that's so fascinating about this to me is this is the first time ever that the Pentagon is taking this dead serious, straight on and that's why they had to get rid of the stigma of UFO, which I love UFO, by the way. That's my you know spirit, if you will.
1: Yeah. UP uh, doesn't do it. You know, it doesn't. But, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so from now on, we don't say, do you believe in UFOs? You say, I believe in UAPs. Is that is that right? I'm not converting. I'm staying, <laughs> I'm, old school on this. I'm staying with UFOs. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I want to get you back on in a, in a few weeks' time, and I want to talk about how this all ties in to your other area of, of research and commentaries, and that is the environment and global warming.
4: Can we do that in a few weeks' time? Sure. If, if, if you have time now, we can talk about Edgar Mitchell's State of the Planet, or we can do it another time. We're, let's do it another time because, we're unfortunately,
1: as you know, time is always up against us. I know. Robert, it is always a pleasure to listen to you. I love the research that you do. I love the fact that you share with us all this information and this knowledge. And you do it. I always feel you do it with a, a total sincerity. But... <laughs> You have that twinkle in your eye at the same time. You've got that little sort of i I'm not gonna say <laughs> I'm not gonna say being satirical, but I do think that you have a little twinkle in your eye sometimes about anything and everything. And I love your commentaries. They're, they're, they're so good.
4: That's great. Thank you so much, Norman. Great talking Robert, to Robert Absolutely
1: Robert. Robert Hunziker, his work you can read in Counterpunch. The link will be up at Life Elsewhere. Robert, thank you once again for joining us at Life Elsewhere. You bet. Take care. Robert Hunzinger's work can be found at Counterpunch. The link is up at lifeelsewhere.com. Now, some music to take us up to the end of the programme. Here's a track from an album titled Lamplighter. It's the debut album from Scottish artist Tommy Ashby. I have been playing this non-stop for the last few days since I received it. It really is absolutely excellent work. You can also find this track, When Love Goes Dark, on the latest volume of Life Elsewhere Music. Go over to LifeElseware.co for the information. Here it is then, taking us up to the close. Tommy Ashby, When Love Goes Dark. Till next time, be well, be safe, and as always, you know it works. Be nice. Bye-bye. Hey. My redemption.
5: Slow burning with no stop signs oh, no turning When you got someone who believes there do right, you bring a knife to a campfire. Oh, cause you're suffering oh, learning When your body is going under Then there's something you gotta find your God is out of thunder and you're walking on
0: You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Co that's C o.